Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. One eyewitness. One major pop cultural event. You had to be there, uncover stories that shed light on our most iconic moments. Each week, a different host takes on the task of finding and interviewing one person within 48 hours who was there with no idea what their event will be. Come join the ride. Hi, Jen. It's Webb from High Bar. Hi. Your assignment for this episode of You Had to Be There is to find an eyewitness to one of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Bed Ends for Peace oh in 1969. <gasps> Starting now, you have 48 hours to find someone who was there and interview them. Good luck. My name is Jen Goma. I'm a musician, performer, producer, and writer. I've worked in film and television, music, nightlife, and in theater. And I am not a journalist. I just wonder, yeah, because she's like supposedly influenced his world so much, you know? Really? How? Yoko? Oh, I thought you were talking about Timothy Chalamet and Kylie Jenner. No, no. I thought Kylie Jenner was dating Bad Bunny. Um. This is Julia, an amazing director and friend I've worked with over the past few years. Julia is also one of the incredible producers of this podcast, and this conversation is happening in the first hour of my 48-hour time window. I've just found out I will be researching John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Bed-Ins for Peace in 1969. They put so much imagery out there. Half of it was about peace and it was about love, and then the other half of it was about just inciting emotional reactions and I think that they thought you know if they could touch a chord then they could well not just make a difference but also like make their art. I want you to think about what you know of the Lennon Ono Bedins. What comes to mind when you picture a black and white photograph of a sunlit hotel room? In the hotel room are four floor-to-ceiling windows framed by sheer white curtains on either side. A bed is centered on the wall of windows. They're wearing white pajamas and have long dark hair. They are surrounded by white flowers. Taped to the window above Lennon is a handwritten sign that says, Hairpiece. Above Ono is a similarly crafted sign that says, Bedpiece. The hazy rooftops of Amsterdam can be seen faintly through the glass behind them. When you picture this, how does it feel in your body? Who do you think John Lennon and Yoko Ono are, and what are they doing in that bed? John and Yoko touched a lot of things that people love to talk about. Peace, love, music. And they also touched a lot of things that people do not want to talk about. Breakups and blame, war, drugs, activism. And I don't think I realized just how famous and what a sticky subject they were until I tried to talk about them a lot with strangers <laughs> and friends. I found the image of them in bed to be like a cultural inkblot. Different people see and feel and say different things. I see John Lennon and Yoko Ono in bed with flowers on either side of them. And, and it feels like a funeral. They take themselves very seriously. They look like they're at a funeral. I don't know who died. Can you tell me? A man person and a woman person. And I see a white person and an Asian person. And I see the, the loadedness of that pairing for me and how that pairing has changed. I don't understand hair piece. 
when I think of hairpiece, even that's spelled differently, I think of toupee. I see two influencers. This piece is contingent on their celebrity. It would have had zero impact without that. I think about the Apple campaign. Cool flowers, cool signs. Okay, did they get up to go to the bathroom? Or they wear diapers? Do you think they did drugs? I think they did drugs. I think they're high in this picture. Really? Yes. No. Yes. Really? Look at them. Oh, yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And they recorded the whole thing. Gotcha. Okay, so it feels relevant to the backdrop of these bed-ins to note that in 1969, John Lennon is still a member of the English rock band The Beatles. To date, The Beatles are the best-selling music act of all time. They were prolific and insanely popular. The term Beatlemania was coined to describe the fanaticism surrounding the band. Their fans were so eager to meet them, see them, be near them, that the group often had to travel in an armored car to get to their performances. The Beatles hit the scene in 1963, the same year the last of the English conscripted soldiers left the National Service. That is the state-mandated military service that was reintroduced in Great Britain as a reaction to the rise of Nazi Germany in 1939. And something I learned while talking with people for this project is that the throngs of people surrounding the Beatles led to comparisons with the group frenzy surrounding Nazi rallies. The Beatles symbolized freedom from mandatory military service. They symbolized mass hysteria. They symbolized immense commercial success. And in 1966, John Lennon would cause a stir when comparing the Beatles' popularity to that of Jesus Christ's. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. John Lennon quoted in the London Evening Standard, March the 4th, words which roused the Protestant fury of the American South as the Beatles began their tour of the States. In Chicago, Lennon apologized. Well, originally I was, I was pointed out that fact in reference to England, that we meant more to kids than Jesus did, or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down, I was just saying it for the fact. It is true, especially more for England than here. You know, you... I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said, and it was wrong, or was taken wrong, and now it's all this. In that video in 1966, John Lennon is sitting at a press conference with his three other bandmates, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr. The bed-ins will happen three years later, and in 1970, the Beatles broke up. It's the end of the 60s, a decade of collective power and grief. It's the end of the Beatles, one of the most popular and most commercially successful groups of all time. And John Lennon and Yoko Ono are getting married. The Bettens were actually their honeymoon. It's a significant coincidence, all of these endings and the introduction of John Lennon and Yoko Ono and their ideas to the world. So during the Bettens, John is still a Beatle. And so the Beatles are also in the room at these Bettens, not actually, but metaphorically. The Bettens for Peace are described by Wikipedia as two week-long nonviolent protests against wars, intended by Ono and Lennon as experimental tests of new ways to promote peace. And sure, I can see that. And I am truly fascinated by the multitude of other things that people see when they look at this picture. And at this point, I am getting excited to talk to someone who was there. 
I'm curious how someone who was in the room would define what was happening and why it was such an evocative event. And there's two of them uh, over multiple days. I think one of them is Amsterdam and one is Montreal. We don't care which one. Looking at the list of people who showed up, it's kind of like a motley crew of, um, gosh, just icons from history. But I think the story behind the bed ends are, it feels like it's been forgotten. I'm so excited and intimidated by this. <laughs> I spent the rest of the first day researching the motley crew of bed-in attendees. On the list were psychedelic drug advocate Timothy Leary, beat poet Allen Ginsberg, comedian and musician Tommy Smothers. A side note about Tommy Smothers, everybody loves him. Over and over again when talking about these bed-ins, everyone says, oh, Tommy Smothers, he would have been a good one to talk to. Uh, my, I'm... Both Dick and I made a career. We had a good career. and It was, it was based on... Um, being in art, I was inarticulate, and, and there's times when there, when you're going through life that you'd like to be articulate, when you'd like to say something clear. And uh, <laughs> this isn't one of those times. He does seem like he would have been fun to hang out with bedside. John Lennon loved a sense of humor. What is all this filming? I mean, what's it for? If somebody cracked a joke at one of those disarmament conferences, maybe they'd disarm. And as Yoko said, if they had no trousers on when they went to war, maybe they wouldn't fight so much. Jokes are good, you know. Let's have more jokes. There are certain people, you know, like Al Cap is one of them. Even he is rescuable, I think. Okay, let me have time. For instance, when 99% of the world starts to say uh, war is obscene, war is indecent, then, you know, he'd feel sort of inhibited to talk about war even. That audio is from Bed Peace, a documentary that was made about the Lennon-Ono bed in for peace in Montreal. Also, the war they are talking about specifically is the Vietnam War. This is happening again in 1969 which is four years after Lyndon Johnson used the newly passed Gulf of Tonkin Resolution to increase the number of American troops in Vietnam to 185,000, all without a declaration of war. So the Vietnam War is a big character in the room, too. In addition to music journalist Paul Williams, Derek Taylor, a.k.a. the Fifth Beatle, although I thought George Martin was the Fifth Beatle, Rabbi Abram Feinberg, cartoonist and the creator of Lil Abner, Al Cap, who Yoko mentions in that earlier clip. In that earlier clip, Yoko thinks war is indecent, and in this clip, Al Cap expresses that he thinks that things that John and Yoko are doing are indecent. Ah, oh, what filth! That's filth. Do you think Some, that's filth? Certainly not. I'm denouncing people who think it is. Thank you. I think that everybody owes it to the world to prove they have pubic hair. And you've done it. <laughs> you've done it, and I tell you that I applaud you for it. They are even visited by the great civil rights activist and comedian Dick Gregory. You could wipe out Calpine in America in the morning if you took this film crew here and went up to a man who was getting elected chair and said, if you would let us film this all the way through, we could guarantee you your death would wipe out capital punishment in America. And you go in and you film him. And then you tell everybody that you got a, the Beatles. It's going to do a special Christmas Eve. And you tell everybody in America, don't eat. Plan your meal around the special. And the special comes on at one. And when the special come on at one, baby, show them that cat getting it. Nobody want to eat. 
and then the whole country be outraged because the last thing we get to see in America is the minister, the very sweet cat. That's mm -hmm. our symbol mm -hmm. of capital punishment. Mm -hmm. Show That's that cat all the way through. Now, this is where, this is where you take a name, you know, and people say, well, you're doing it for publicity. Morally dedicated entertainers have to do things for publicity, as long as it's morally pure. Who? And that is just to name a few of the people who were there. They had a lot of different voices in their ears. And this whole thing is starting to feel a bit like a jam session, when musicians get together unprepared and write a song together. It also feels a little bit like a songwriting camp, which in the music industry is when publishing companies gather groups of musicians and ask them to jam together in order to grow their catalog of music that they could potentially sync for film or TV. And in both of those scenarios, whether the intended purpose of the music is personal or commercial, the making of it is pretty similar. You get a bunch of different people in the room and you see what they come up with. As I looked at the invite list for this jam session, I wondered if the person I was looking to interview was a celebrity. I began texting friends, asking if they thought they could connect me with someone who would know someone who was at the bed ins. I got a few replies back. No. <laughs> I don't know, but I could ask my mom. My mom did not like Yoko Ono. They were probably all journalists. Maybe look in archives to see who wrote about it and if they're still around. And then finally, a reply from a friend that said, I know Yoko's manager. I can send you his email address. Suddenly it feels like maybe I'm getting somewhere. And... Is the celebrity that I want to talk to, who was in the room at the Bedins, Yoko Ono? Um, I'll tell you right now, it's not. <laughs> I did get a reply from her manager, though. He told me and my friend that the Bedins were well before his time, and that many of the guests, journalists, and photographers were now deceased 55 years later. So your window for an interview may have closed, he said. That last part stuck with me. So many people had been telling me how long ago this event happened, and that all the people in the room were dead. And that's when I got an idea. I immediately called Webb to catch him up on my progress and to get his reaction to my idea. I called the Montreal Hotel. Okay. Because they have a Lennon, or they were calling it actually the Yoko Ono room, which I liked. But they have okay. like a Lennon Ono suite there that you can... A rent for $3,500 a night. Interesting. But I think the big thing that I'm personally, the idea I'm most excited about is that I'd really like to get in touch with like a psychic medium who could contact Tommy Smothers. With the what? I, I would like to get in touch with a psychic medium who could contact one of the people that we know was in the room who has died. Interesting. <laughs> Um, I don't know how their families would feel. However, um, it is an interesting path. Um, it's very creative, very avant-garde of you. Um, so I get excited about this idea and I reach out to my friend Louise, who works as a hypnotist. I call her to ask if she knows any mediums she could put me in touch with. And I also just want to chat about what the options are when a boundary to communication is death. We get into why and how this research into the Bedins is all happening. Did you get given this event or did you select it? Why did you give me the Bedins? Um, we were, uh, I'm not sure. 
Cool. Back to Louise. This is where I am as somebody who works with the subconscious. I'm just like, well, there's no accidents. There's no coincidences. Yes. 100%. I've absolutely reached out to you, to my friends, you know, to be like, how do I go about this? Like I have been looking to people to be, you know, Mm -hmm. guided towards an outcome. And I just do feel like, yeah, I would like an energetic guide. This is a clip of Yoko talking to a friend of hers who she and John had visited in Greece in the 1960s. This friend had taken them around to see astrologers, palm readers, and psychics. I totally believe that some people are psychic and, you know, the, the message comes through some people. But the problem with the messages, I tell you, you know, the prediction may be right, but then uh, sometimes I feel that, uh, you know, they're not that useful because we are still sort of blinded by uh, well, some, you know, greatest power or something like that, you know, that they, they don't want us to know everything, you know. Oh, I guess that if we did know, our life would be miserable. Or our life would be different. Back to web. I'm trying to think of a good way around it. I think you're like approaching it the smartest way, especially with the venues. What do you think about me talking to someone who was there who is deceased? I think that would be a stretch. Back to Louise. Have you ever had any interaction with a psychic medium or have you ever had any like direct experience in your life of like some kind of communication from, I don't know, the beyond, beyond the veil, behind the veil, wherever? I explained that I hadn't really had any interaction with psychics. And then we get to the part where we realize that even if I were able to lift the veil, that on the other side, maybe the people I want to talk to wouldn't want to talk to me. This comedian medium. Mm-hmm. Comedium. Comedium, exactly. <laughs> He's just like, I'm just a person. And like the people that I'm talking to, they're just people. So like, they may not want to talk to you. Yes. Consent is real. And back to me and Webb. But I'm hearing a, a, a no on following the psychic medium path. I would, yeah, I would not follow that as <laughs> that would be my inclination. I would try to stick to people and witnesses and uh, experts and like, like I don't having someone else speak for someone makes it really difficult. Listen, I have two leads, one with a living person at the hotel. And then the other one that I feel would be really interesting is I, everyone just keeps reminding me that everybody who is there is dead. Which is wild because you would think there'd be like someone who is in their 20s during that time period. Well, there was a photographer who was 15 who was in the room. He is still alive. And also he is German, I believe. So there's also just for me, I'm like, huh, I can't just message him on Instagram. Right. It doesn't seem like he actually populates his Instagram. It's like you'd have to reach out to someone else or someone else. My name is Hovet Roos and I'm a photographer here in Amsterdam. John Lennon, he, he was my hero. I was 15 in that time. The moment I walked in to room 702, it was magic. What they did trying to get peace by laying in a bed was totally different. It seemed to me that if we could get people from all nations staying under roof that they wouldn't want to fight, we think that uh, we're helping out in the struggle for world peace. Another side note, through this video, I learn about Hilton's vintage ad campaign. The tagline that can be seen in the video reads, 
world peace through international trade and travel. And I'm going to have to do another episode where I get one of the madmen to explain to me how that works. Anyway, back to the end of day two. It just feels funny to be like, all right, it's five o'clock the day before this is supposed to be over. And we, I have to turn to the people, you know, I just have to speak to humans. Yeah. Yeah. And see what happens. I think you have a lot of options. I think we'll figure it out. Hello. Hi, can I speak to Madame Coma? Yes, that is me. Hi. Hi, I'm calling from the Fermont de Queen Elizabeth. How are you? She was calling me to tell me who to write to, to speak to someone about the room. So they uh, and they say that you can give them the the email from the director of marketing and he's gonna help you and he's good with that. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to talk to a person pretty quickly, just because it's a podcast. It's like an audio story. It would just be nice to get the information from a person. Yes, so that's no problem too. So when you send the email, uh-huh. you mention that you need something asap and you want to have some voice, someone explain everything, and they're gonna do that. She told me to email marketing. The marketing department, they, they take care about this. Okay. And where do you work in the hotel? I work at the department of the administrative. I'm the receptionist. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your help. Do you feel like you field a lot of calls about the John and Yoko room? Recently not, because uh, since we do the Barbie room, uh, <laughs> the um, Barbie uh, dream suite take the, the, the advantage uh, of uh, the attention of people. But um, the John Lennon, Yoko Ono, is uh, something going on uh, uh, all years long. Yeah. Something that uh, it never fails, it never fails, always, always. Wow, wow, wow. Wow. It never fails, it always gets attention. Wow. Yes, yes. That's yes. so interesting. Because Thank they you. have a fan, they fan, they fan of uh, you, John Lennon, so it's just the fan they do that. Yeah. Oh, I see. So, like, a lot of people come to it as fans to just visit the site. Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Yes. They cannot visit the room because we uh, we sell the room, just, uh, but they they rent it, like, they, they do a reservation and they sleep there and they get all the, all the experience of the John Lennon uh, uh, room. Wow. It's not like a it's not like a museum because usually people they said, "Oh, can I come for a few hours, take pictures and visit the room?" Um we cannot accept that because we 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 propose the room as a, a room in a hotel, so it's available for reservation. Yeah. So and they accept that usually because they fan like uh, and uh, it's so many uh, I'm really excited for you to speak to the person at the marketing because so many detail in a room about John Lennon, it's like you really have a story for every part of the room. Mm. It's it's really impressive. Yeah, have you been in it? Yes, I visited the room. I didn't get the chance to sleep there, but I visited the room. I have 12 hours left in my 48-hour time window to find someone and interview them. It's nearly midnight, and I'm watching Bed Piece, the hour-long documentary about the bed-ins that you heard a bit of earlier in the episode. You see, any enterprise is dependent on people. So people are really actually strong. They can do anything they want if they get together. But you're not the first beautiful people to come out with such ideas. But we're in the water and swimming, and we do our best, you know. Mm. We think it'll work. With everybody's help, it'll work. All we've got to do is turn people on to the fact that they are the government now, and they have the power now. It's not something that somebody's going to give them. They have it. It's that old game of faith in yourself, you know. Let's have faith altogether. Okay, great. Faith for music. (laughs) Okay, Okay. lights off. 
At the end of this interview, Lennon seems tired. Tired of trying to hawk music in exchange for peace. Tired of having lights in his face. John Lennon said that they wanted to manufacture peace throughout the world. At the end of this day, when I am also tired, that sounds like a big ask. And like Wikipedia said, the Bedins were just one in a string of experimental tests of new ways to promote peace. It seems like maybe he's just tired of trying to find new ways to sell peace. Did you know that John Lennon and Yoko Ono also got into a bag for peace? This is another peace protest, by the way. Why the bag? Why because the bag? we believe it's total communication. That means that if we have something to say or anybody has something to say, they can communicate and not confuse you with what color your skin is or how long your hair's grown. But if the least we can do is give somebody a laugh, we're willing to be the world's clowns. I'm remembering there's a long history of artists trying to combine hard messages with laughter. I think Mike Myers talks about it a little bit. If there was a book about comedy that I would write, and I'm not going to, um, it would be in praise of silly. I think silly is the best medium for getting ideas across. There's oh, behave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baby. Yeah. And if you watch Austin Powers 3 with the commentary on, Mike Myers says something that I think about a lot, which is every comedian wants to be a musician and every musician wants to be a comedian. I laugh a little bit thinking about this and find some energy to keep emailing. I continue to email friends and strangers asking if anyone knows someone who knows someone. I find the contact information for Gauvert de Roos, the 15-year-old photographer from Amsterdam, for Nico Koster, another photographer who was at the Amsterdam Hilton. I also call the Amsterdam Hilton itself. I call the Hare Krishnas in Montreal. I finish up emailing, and it's getting late, when I make a final list of people to call in the morning. On the list, a man named Jerry Levitin, a different teenager who snuck into a Toronto hotel to see John and Yoko the night before the second Montreal bed-in. As I'm going to bed in the final hours of the assignment window, I'm thinking of something I said to Webb when I first got the assignment. I definitely feel like there's a little bit of a you-can't-fuck-this-up feeling about it, which feels good. Yeah, I think that's true. It's okay to fail, I think. <laughs> Either way, I'm thinking about failure when I go to sleep. When I go, when I go to sleep. It's funny what stays with us in our dreams. That night I'm not dreaming of everything I have to do. I'm dreaming of all the sounds that Jerry Levitin's website makes. I'm up early, with four hours left in my 48-hour time window. I'm looking at the website of Jerry Levitin, the man who at age 14 snuck into a Toronto hotel to meet John Lennon and Yoko Ono one night before their Montreal bed-ins. It seems that Jerry is not just a director and writer, having made a documentary short about his meeting with John Lennon and also having written a book about the experience. He is also known as Sir Jerry, a Toronto children's entertainer. Like I said earlier, Jerry made his way into a hotel room in Toronto the night before the Montreal bed-ins began. So he wasn't exactly in the official bed-ins room, but with three hours left, he feels close enough to me. And as luck would have it, I'm able to find a phone number for Jerry, and he actually picks up the phone. 
Hello? Hi, I was looking to speak with Jerry Levitin. Speaking. Hi, how are you? My name is Jen. I'm working with a podcast, and I'm currently working on an episode about John Lennon and Yoko Ono's bed-ins for peace in 1969, and I was wondering if I could take like 20, 30 minutes of your time to ask you some questions about that. For sure. I'm, I'm driving right now. If you could, uh, and I won't be back at my desk. I make a plan with Jerry to talk to him later that day and to send him an email with more details about the podcast. And when I go to my inbox, I see an email from Nico Koster, the photographer who was at the Amsterdam Bedins. He's written me a short email that says, yes, you can call me with his phone number. Hi, hello, Nico. Uh, this is Jen. We, uh, I emailed you. Yeah, yes, that's correct. Yes, hello. Um, do you mind if I record our conversation? Uh, not now, Nico. Too Can I call you later back because I'm in a meeting at the moment? Absolutely, yes. Um, or do you want me to try you back in like an hour or two hours? Uh, no, uh, tomorrow around 11 o'clock. At 11 a.m.? Yes, tomorrow. Uh, okay, great. I'll, I'll call you then. Thank you. Thank you. It's 11 a.m., and I can hardly believe it, but I found two people who were in a hotel room with John Lennon and Yoko Ono in 1969, and they have both agreed to talk with me. My 48 hours are up, and I have a call with Webb. Last night was a very cool dark night of the soul in terms of my project because it was like, it felt global, although it probably wasn't, of just like a no, not right now, not today. And like today the sun came up and then everybody called me back, everybody emailed me back, everybody answered their phone. But I really hear that. Last night people were like, I don't want to do this. Isn't it funny how that happens? It always happens that way, where you go to bed and you're like, I, this, I'm so screwed. I don't know what I'm doing. Then you wake up and you're like, I'm not screwed. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I definitely know so much more about what I'm doing. Yeah, 100,000%. I'm not saying this out loud anymore the way I was in the first 24 hours, but I do like keeping that like, I, I don't totally know what I'm doing. The edge. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The edge between the middle path. But yeah, so... I didn't get a full interview with anybody yet, but I did, in this first 48 hours, talk to two people, voice to voice, person to person, who were at the bed-ins. One of them was just a fan. I'm going to get their story about how they like hustled their way in to meet John Lennon. And the other one was a photographer, um, but they wow. both said that they would be willing to talk to me. Awesome. That's great. I know. Does this count? I like got, I bagged the interview. Yeah, yeah, okay. it, it counts. Yeah, that counts. That's incredible. The fan and the photographer, like, I don't want to tell you what you should ask, but like. No, please. I'm not a journalist. Tell me. <laughs> All right. Act two. Let's go. So it's 11 a.m. Amsterdam time, which is 5 a.m. New York City time. Nico didn't answer. I'm going to try again in 10 minutes. And if I can't get a hold of Nico in 10 minutes, I'm going to go back to bed. I personally think that there is nothing so sure to happen quite like the thing that gets rescheduled a thousand times. So I go back to bed and decide to try Nico again later. 
And once again, I'm going to bed, and because it is so early in the morning, I'm very tired. But I don't exactly feel defeated, I just feel like there is a long way to go. In the doc bed piece, John Lennon and Yoko Ono talk a lot about how there is no time for negative thoughts. Here is John and Yoko talking with Tommy Smothers, the beloved guy who brought people so much joy, who, I don't know, sort of seems to be losing a bit of hope himself. They've won. Oh, the establishment? Yeah. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. They don't stand a chance. And there's no space or no time for negative thoughts, you know. We just have to say, listen, we're going to make it, that's all. And we have to make it, don't the only you way, Yeah, we have to make it. It's like being dropped in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, you know, and there's 800 it. miles, you know you're not going to swim it. But you don't just drown, you start swimming. Even well, though it's hopeless. You don't know if you're going to come across a log or if yeah, you're going to you come across yeah, a island. Porpoise, porpoise, it'll pick you up, maybe. Yeah, okay, maybe. well, believe in porpoise then. Believe in porpoise. I like the idea of believing in porpoise. It does make me laugh. I guess I could go a little farther on my journey with this joke in my head. And I'm also wondering what it is that keeps people going, keeps people swimming outside of just laughter and good vibes. Or like, when is it okay to stop? Or even just slow down or pivot or change the plan? Does something that looks like stopping slash giving up get lumped in with being a negative thought? I feel the structure, the scaffolding of John and Yoko's power of positive thinking. And I know this desire to have a boundary around negativity. And I know this desire to keep going. And I guess I'm talking about something like motivation. We all get to that moment in a process where you wonder if you are really doing something or if you're just stalling and stuck. Sometimes I can mistake momentum for motivation. Sometimes I can mistake purpose for porpoise. During the bed-ins, Lennon and Ono have a conversation with KPFA, a listener-funded Berkeley radio station, while they are at the Montreal bed-in. They are speaking with the radio station just after the 1969 People's Park protest, also known as Bloody Thursday, which took place at People's Park on May 15, 1969 in Berkeley, California. The People's Park was a vacant and underutilized piece of land owned by UC Berkeley that was occupied by political activists and deemed the People's Park. The park lasted for about a month before Berkeley ordered the land cleared. A rally was organized on the Berkeley campus as a response. Thousands gathered and marched to the People's Park, where protesters clashed with police who used tear gas and buckshot, while the protesters were said to have thrown rocks and bottles. After the protest, the city ordered a curfew, and then-Governor Ronald Reagan called in the National Guard, whose helicopters sprayed tear gas over the Berkeley campus. While Ono and Lennon were on the phone with KPFA, the National Guard still occupied the city, which remained under martial law. Just leave the place. Let them have it. Well, where do we go? Go anywhere, man. It's better than dying. I'm upset at the fact that this is the way we handle things in the United States. Everyone has to throw rocks at each other and then shoot them. I mean, it's nice to keep leaving, but there's just so many times you can keep leaving. You know, I just say whatever. Violence begets violence. And uh, make love, not war. You should keep up a constant, day-to-day, solid advertising campaign as, as they do to us. They are, they are on all the time selling their war and selling their products. We must do the same. In this phone call, I hear artists speaking to activists, and I think about how both the practices of art and activism seek to change. And I think about 
how art and life aren't neat and separate experiences. They don't just imitate or inspire each other. There is a cross-pollination, an unstable and unexplainable relationship. As an artist, I know and have felt the power that art has to change life. And at this point in the journey, I just don't know. Is the process of making the systemic change we want like the process of making art or a song? Okay, I'm rested and back to following leads. My first lead, Nico Koster, the photographer at the Amsterdam Bed-Ins, Jerry Levitin, the former 14-year-old boy who snuck into the Toronto hotel that John Lennon and Yoko Ono were staying in the night before their Montreal bed-ins, and the marketing team at the Montreal hotel itself. In our email correspondence, Jerry and I decide on a time to have an interview, and he shares some of his work with me. Jerry seems to be a bit of a multi-hyphenate, but why he's made his way onto my radar is because the night before the Montreal bed-ins, young Jerry was granted an interview with John Lennon. Grown up Jerry goes on to become an artist in his own right and make an animated short film called I Met the Walrus, using the audio from that interview. The short features young Jerry, age 14, speaking with John Lennon while line drawing animation blooms from the subject matter of their conversation. I started getting this feeling that there's a, a, a message in it, you know? You know, messages are there on all levels, on all, in all music. On whatever level you get it on, I've had it too when I wrote it or sang it. Jerry and I talk a lot about how he got into that room with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. He urges me to Google and watch the work he's made about his experience, and honestly, I urge you to do the same. The interview is very sweet. No one in school, like, if you ask them who's your favorite group, they'll say the Bee Gees, you know? Like, I'll ask them, why don't you like the Beatles? You know, they're, they're fantastic, they're great, etc. And they'll say, because, um... They're all hippies, and they're gone from us. They're dirty now. Oh, you know? I see. Well, those kids, uh, they sound like Son of Square. They just got to get from under their parents' wings, you know. says to this day, and he said it in an interview, that my interview is probably his most favorite interview that his father had because it's not from media. It, it was just him talking to a kid, and he would fantasize what it would be like had his father been alive when he was 14, right? It's just a, mm. just a very honest, natural, real conversation. And that's why, you know, cut through the celebrity, John and Yoko were the real deal. Yeah. What is the realest thing that happened in the time that you spent with them? Like, did you guys eat food together? Did you play cards? It's not like he just spent the time just with me. There weren't a ton of people in the room. There was a Capitol Records PR guy and the Beatles PR guy. And on occasion, someone from the press came in. And even after I did the interview, we were just chatting, shooting the shit or whatever. You know, it's like, you know, I was watching smoke French cigarettes. I just took it all in. Probably the most real thing is when he, when I came back later for the interview and um, someone set up this big uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder, the Beatles PR guy said, okay, sit here. John and Yoko will be out in a second. They're just getting dressed. So I'm sitting there and they show up. Like I could feel John pass me by, you know, like the air. Yeah. And he <laughs> sat down and he says, hey, you want a picture? <laughs> right? uh. <laughs> and I said, sure. And I, I think it was Yoko who snapped uh, the picture of me and him. Wow. How did you feel when you listened to their music? Maybe not for the first time, but just generally. Oh, my God. I've never experienced it 
since. You know, the hype about uh, a new Beatles song or record coming out was magical, right? Mm -hmm. And radio stations would say, next Tuesday at 4 p.m., listen to the world premiere of Get Back or, you know, Mm -hmm. Strawberry Fields or whatever. And you couldn't wait. It's not like you could go on YouTube or Spotify or TikTok and hear the song. Mm. Uh, You had to to wait, just listen to the radio. And it was also true when John and Paul, after the breakup, and George, to a much lesser extent, Ringo, when they would have a solo release, you'd get a bit of that feeling. But when a new Beatles song was coming out or an album, it was electrifying. Like, wow. Like, I remember when I bought the Double White album and I rushed home because, you know, the radio station maybe played one or two songs on it a couple days before the release. And you'd have to wait for that song to come on. Rushed home and I had this lousy uh, record player with lousy speakers. I put them against each ear and listened mm-hmm. to it. And those days, you know, you listen to a side of the record, turn it over, whatever, listen to it on and off, like for hours and hours. It was magical. Mm. And that was the power of the Beatles. And it's why their music resonates to this day and impacts so many people, young and old. Everything about it was just so cool and exciting. Remember when I told you this whole bed-in reminded me of a songwriting camp? I forgot to mention, or maybe I just didn't even know then, but they did, in fact, record a song at the bed-in in Montreal. It was the song, Give Peace a Chance. The song that was written and recorded, made, at the Montreal bed-in was sung by half a million demonstrators in Washington, D.C. on Vietnam Moratorium Day, November 15, 1969. They were led by Pete Seeger, who interspersed phrases like, Are you listening, Nixon? Are you listening, Agnew? Between the choruses of protesters singing. Can I ask you this, Jen? It'll just give me an idea of the generational issues here. Can I ask you roughly how old you are? Oh, sure. I'm 35. Okay. I mean, <laughs> compared to me, you're young, right? <laughs> so, you know, look, because I've had kids and grandkids a long time to this day, I've always been in touch with music and celebrity and would take my kids to concerts of stars uh, that they liked at the time. So whether it was like Beck or then Lady Gaga, or mm-hmm. I would buy tickets for them. I'd go with them, see these concerts and stuff, because I wanted them to have experience the joy that I experienced when an artist um, you know, lifts you up yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. makes you happy. Yes. Hopeful and positive. Um, Well, this is just the last strange question that I have before we wrap up. Did John and Yoko in your time with them talk at all about like spiritual mediums or like spirituality? Uh, No. Okay. Uh, It was very real. He went out of his way to diminish my view of him and the Beatles as God's walking the earth. Mm -hmm. Right. We would say, you know, I'm just a guy. I wake up in the morning. Yeah. I try to touch me toes. Right? Mm-hmm. And practical stuff like he says, you know, whatever you do, do it for peace. Doesn't matter what you do. Mm-hmm. But if you run around, this is a quote, if you run around wild, you're going to get smacked. Yeah. And I guess in my course of researching this, I think 
it makes sense that back then where he was at, being seen as sort of a kind of deity, he would have to go and position himself towards his humanity. You described listening to him as magic. People were experiencing magic. So he had to connect to his humanity. It's occurring to me that when I hear what you're talking about, and when I was researching this whole thing, I was like, there seems to be some other je ne sais quoi here, like some certain element that I'm missing from my reality today. And it feels like there was this feeling of magic. And I think that that's why I'm thinking about spirituality. It just feels like everybody who was there had a lot more access to this realm of like magic and hope and electricity. And I'm sort of curious right now today, I'm like, how can we conjure that? How can we find that? And from your story, what I hear, the advice I'm taking away from what you've shared with me is be patient Mm -hmm. and find the things that make you feel electrified, magical, goodness, love, joy, humor, find those things and gravitate towards them. Sure. This is what I say to people all the time, including when I was running for office. Good people have to stick together Mm. and gravitate to good people, people who have good things to say, positive things to say, love or whatever. That's 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 the answer. Right. There are so many barriers to feeling that feeling of love and magic and I hear from you, I hear that they're out there, I hear that you've experienced them. And when I think of my lived experience and my day to day, how often do I experience magic? How often do I experience hope? How often do I feel electrified? Not often, you know? And I'm hearing that that was like pretty essential to what made it possible for you to do sort of like something that feels superhuman to us, which is that you went and knocked on John and Yoko's door. It's true. Listen to John's song, God. It's on his first solo album when the Beatles broke up. It's a spectacular song, and it touches on on so many of the questions you asked about, Jen, and the lyrics are so powerful. Yeah, I'm sorry to lump you in with your entire generation, but I feel you guys are like trying to say like, hey, this is the stuff that made us feel good. This is the stuff that made us feel better. Do you want to try it out? Because I think there's a lot of people in my generation who are like, stop telling me to listen to the Beatles. <laughs> but what I hear is you're like, listen, this stuff made me feel really good. I want you to go listen to it, not because I want you to be yeah. like me, but I'm trying to share with you something that made my life better. I'm hearing that now for the first time that someone's saying to me, listen to the Beatles because they made me feel really good. Yeah. You got it. I'm kidding. I am actually a really big Beatles fan, but you're really inspiring me to listen to them like with fresh ears and in a different way. That's sweet. Well, you're really selling the Beatles to me. (laughs) Well, a magical thing happened to me way back when. And um, and Mm -hmm. it's in my DNA. That's the reality. Yeah. Yeah. Magic can change your DNA. Yeah, that's cyborg stuff. That's AI. (laughs) (laughs) To tie it to my listeners, you know, who are trying to connect with it today. And just to clarify, Jerry was hanging out in a hotel with John Lennon and Yoko Ono in May of 1969, which is just before the Montreal bed-ins took place. I'm still excited to talk to Nico Koster in Amsterdam, who photographed the Amsterdam bed-ins in March of that same year. 
Remember that black and white photograph you were picturing earlier, where Lennon and Ono are in the bed, centered on a wall of windows with the signs bed piece and hair piece hanging above them? Nico took that picture. Nico and I play a bit more phone tag, and in one phone call he tells me that if I want to conduct an interview in English, that I might want to talk to his colleague Honk von der Maiden, who speaks English more fluently than he does. I hear what he's saying, but I can't shake the feeling that Nico is the person I want to talk to. So I reached out to a friend whose mother speaks Dutch. Nico and I set a date to have a phone call with the help of Betta de Boer, my friend's mom, who would translate for us. I found out that Nico had worked for the local paper, and that he actually went back to the hotel to photograph the couple almost every day of the Amsterdam Eddins. And what struck me the most was not only was I talking to yet another artist, a photographer, but Nico was also a Beatles fan. I'll start with the last sentence that Nico said. It was like a fairy tale. In a way, he was very sort of bowled over by the fame of these people. But then when he entered the room, they were like normal people and they made him feel so welcomed. So you were a big fan of the Beatles, Nico. Yeah, yeah yes. I have, I have seen the Beatles the first time in Blokker in a bolle Yeah, who say you that now? A bolle Ja, zeg maar in Nederlands. Ik was in uh, die, daarvoor natuurlijk ben ik, heb ik het concert in Nederland gezien van de Beatles in Blokker. Dat is bekend. En dat was in oude grote bolle schuren in Noord-Holland. Oké, okay, so uh, Nico attended the concert in Holland um, in Noord-Holland, that which is ja. a province in Holland. Um, and it was happening in large. Um, yeah, barns. In schuren, zei je. Klopt dat? Ja, op het platteland in een bloembollenschuur. In the country, amidst the... Where the... the tulips. Uh, the tulips were. Yeah, and the shed... The shed was, the, was a tulip country. Yeah. Okay, so that was in 1963, the concert, and... And of course, the, the bed-in was in 69. Wow, so that's like just before the Beatles even really broke through in America. Wow, that's incredible. I'm very curious, like, Nico, how did it feel to be in the room with John Lennon, with one of the Beatles? He was very nice. He played music. He played also often on his guitar, so I had a private concert. Okay, so he, John Lennon also played on his private guitar, and so... Um, Nico had a private concert there. Do you remember any of the songs he played? Yeah, yesterday he played yesterday and 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 some other things. That is very, very yeah, it is fantastic, interesting to that natuurlijk mee te maken. It was incredibly interesting to experience it. Wow, wow, that just adds like such a interesting layer to the photos to hear the personal relationship. They feel like a real like window into the mood of what it was like to be there. I'm so happy they exist. Nico had been so generous, answering my emails and phone calls and agreeing to a translated interview for a podcast he had never heard of. I can't help but think it was Nico's fandom that inspired his generosity. 
He actually was who I'd been looking for, someone who wanted to talk to me. Not just about an iconic moment in history, but about a moment in their life that was really special to them. It's starting to make a lot of sense as to why this event has been passed down from generation to generation as a cultural touchstone. The people who were in charge of disseminating the information, journalists, photographers, artists, a lot of them were fans. They loved the Beatles. Yes, people like to talk about the things that make them mad. And also, people really like to talk about the things they love, the things that light them up. Well, this will be interesting, I think, because this song has gotten mentioned a lot, and this will be the first time that I've ever heard it. And I'm looking at the lyrics, because Jerry and Webb said they were powerful. I don't believe in magic. I don't believe in eaching. Oh, he says I ching. <laughs> I don't believe I don't believe in tarot. I don't believe in Hitler. I don't believe in Kennedy. Let me see. I don't believe in Buddha. I don't believe in mantra. I don't believe in Gita. I don't believe in yoga. I don't believe in kings. I don't believe in Elvis. I don't believe in Zimmerman. I don't believe in Beatles. Just believe in me. You'll go in me. That's reality. The dream is over. What can I say? The dream is over Yesterday You Had to Be There is a High Bar production Created by High Bar Today's episode John Lennon and Yoko Ono Bed-Ins for Peace Was written and hosted by Jen Gomer Produced by Julia Thompson And Webb Barr Story produced by Julia Thompson. Edit, sound mix, and engineering by Teeny Lieberson. Original score by Teeny Lieberson. Artwork created by Dylan Lathman. Special thanks to our parents, friends, and chosen family. And most importantly, thank you to the artists who have inspired us. Because they had to do it.